Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be. If you don't have a Bible and you don't have an app on your phone, uh, you can find Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. And if you don't know where to find things in the Bible, Genesis is the very first book. So we got you covered. It's easy today. We are going to be, as I said, in Genesis chapter 3. Before we get to that, I have some uh, kind of sad news for you. Uh, From time to time, we have to announce the fact that we have people who are moving away from our church, people that we love and care about. And I want to let you know that the Wenzel family is going to be uh, moving. Uh, uh, This is going to be their last Sunday uh, Will and Cheryl and their son Elijah are going to be uh, moving this week, and we are very sad to lose them uh, because they have been uh, faithful here at our church. We're thankful for them. Many of you know them. The good news is that they are moving to the great state of Ohio, and not only are they are moving to the great state of Ohio, they are moving to the greatest city, which is Columbus, Ohio, I think to be near the greatest football team. Actually, I think Will has family there, but I think Ohio State football does have something to do with this, at least in my mind. Uh, So we're very, very sad to lose them, um, but we're glad for this next chapter, and you want to say goodbye to them today if you haven't already, and tell them how glad you've been for them to be here. All right, Genesis chapter 3 is where we're going to be uh, spending the majority of our time today, but I'm... I'm going to guess that most of us probably have not spent a lot of time in the book of Habakkuk recently. Habakkuk is one of those books that you know is in the Bible, and maybe you read it through one time, that time that you read through the Bible in a year, but it's, a, it's one of the minor prophets. It's near the end of the Old Testament. It's just three short chapters, and it's somewhat unfamiliar to us. But one of the main messages of the book of Habakkuk that God had given the prophet Habakkuk is this, the Babylonians are coming. The Babylonians are coming. And this proclamation that God wanted his prophet Habakkuk to speak to the nation was not intended to spur a midnight ride. He did not want him to to go running through saying the Babylonians are coming so that everyone could take arms and defend themselves. Because the Babylonians were a ruthless war machine, and God had promised that He was not going to restrain them from conquering the southern kingdom of Judah and the nation of Israel. They are described, Babylon is described in a variety of ways. They're described as being being dreaded, as being more fierce than wolves of coming for violence, and as gathering captives like sand. And that's the message that Habakkuk has to deliver. God's judgment was coming. But in that third chapter of that little book, there is a prayer of Habakkuk that is recorded. And in this grave responsibility that he has to deliver this very unpopular and, I would say, discouraging message of judgment, he makes a request. 
It's a simple request in the face of oncoming judgment, and it's found in chapter 3 and verse 2. That simple request is this, in wrath, remember mercy. In wrath, Lord, remember mercy. This morning, we are going to be doing something that's rather difficult. We are going to be spending our time together in God's Word talking about judgment. And you say, I don't really want to talk about judgment. That's not why I came here. I came here to get a lift for next week. (laughs) One of the things that we do here is we preach through books of the Bible at a time. And so I just preach what's next. And judgment is next. And so we're going to talk about that together this morning. But in God's wrath, in God's judgment, we are going to see God, even in that, remember mercy. Last week, if you were with us, we saw Adam and Eve disobey God. They deliberately chose to go a different direction that God had stated for them, and I said last week that they experienced immediate consequences for that, and I said that those immediate consequences could be summarized in just one word. Do you remember what that one word was? I heard it. Somebody remembered it. Somebody did. Gold star. Hiding. That one word describes the immediate consequences, and so they immediately find themselves hiding from each other because they are ashamed. But not only do they hide from each other, they hide from God because they are afraid. But these immediate consequences that they experience in the form of hiding are not the only consequences that they are going to experience. In fact, In the latter half of this chapter, we are going to see God speak a word of judgment over them. And this word of judgment that we are going to consider today is something that we still experience the effects of right here, right now. But I see four main pronouncements of judgment that I want us to work through this morning in the second half of this chapter. And the first pronouncement of judgment is God's word of judgment on the serpent. God's word of judgment on the serpent. If you've got your Bible open to Genesis chapter 3, let's look together at verse 14. The Bible says this in Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, if you were here last week, you might remember that the New Testament makes it clear that this is Satan, because Revelation chapter 12 and verse 9 refers to that ancient serpent, the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And the Bible tells us that this deceiver, the devil and Satan, the serpent, is cursed from the very beginning. He is going to eat dust as a symbol of his humiliation, and that's 
a metaphor that we still use to one degree or another today, eat my dust. Now, I have been stopped at at more than a few stoplights before, and I have never yet been able to say that to anyone else. Because as I told the folks in the first service, I drive not one, but two minivans. And so there are often kids on e-bikes beating me off the line when I'm at a stop sign. But there are cars, I'm told, that can do that. Well, this serpent is going to eat dust as a sign of his humiliation, and God declares to him that this is a beginning of a conflict that is going to be a conflict through the ages. The offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman are going to be in constant conflict with each other. There is going to be a a war of the ages throughout the ages between these two basic lines of descendants. And this conflict is eventually going to end with the serpent and his descendants under the heel of the woman and her descendant, but we'll talk a little bit more about that later. That's the word of judgment on the serpent. There's a second word of judgment that I want us to see this morning, and this is the judgment that, the, that, that God speaks over the woman. In verse 16, It says, to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. There are two aspects to this judgment that God speaks over Eve, these consequences that come from her sin The first is that her pain is going to be multiplied in childbearing. Mothers, where are you at? You know. I don't know. But you know what the Bible is talking about here. There's a reason why we talk about the delivery of a baby as labor. Have you ever heard anyone refer to the delivery of a baby as vacation? You haven't, and I would recommend you not. You know what's good for you. We refer to the delivery of a baby as labor. And labor is painful. It does not matter matter whether it is a home birth, a hospital birth, a water birth, a natural birth, a shot in your spine birth, which is definitely what I would get. It does not matter whether it is a C-section, whether it is the delivery through a doula or a midwife or a nurse or a doctor, it hurts. But why, of all things, is that the judgment? Out of all the things that God could have said, why is this a piece of the judgment? And the answer to that is related to the fact that this is is directly chipping away at one of Eve's purposes. Let me remind you that God, the Bible tells us in the opening chapters that God creates humanity, both male and female, equally in His image. And as His image bearers, all human beings, male and female, have equal worth and value. 
And as His image bearers, we have been given responsibilities. We have been given purpose by God. The first pair was given the responsibility to be fruitful and multiply and then to have dominion over the earth, which if you were with us several weeks ago and we were talking about that, you'll know that their responsibility was basically to make the whole earth Eden. Eden is a template of what the whole earth is intended to become as they have children and as they have dominion over the world that God has put them in. They Both human beings are His representatives bearing His image and likeness. But this judgment directly impacts part of Eve's responsibility of being fruitful and multiplying to the task that God has given them. The second aspect of God's judgment is related to her relationship with her husband. This is the original battle of the sexes. And I think what God is saying here is that whereas Adam and Eve had once been in perfect harmony with each other, that would no longer be the case. In fact, the the tensions between them that they had just experienced, the conflict between them that they had just had was not going to be some kind of one-off. It was going to be something that was a repeated pattern in their relationship both between husbands and wives in particular, and before men, between men and women in general. Some of you couples probably had an argument before you got here this morning. I didn't, because my wife's out of town. <laughs> so, can't argue. Don't tell her I said that. This is between us. But you know, I mean, you think about the existence that they've had up to this point where they have just been in, in, in perfect harmony with each other, and you think about some of the knockdown, drag-out fights that you've had. And you've all had them. We all know. I have two. It's not this morning. But we've all had them. And even if it's not a knockdown, drag-out fight, we've all had... What did he mean by that? What did she mean by that? Well, if they don't notice this, then I'm going to do this. We'll see how they like. See how they like that not being done for a few weeks. We've given each other the cold shoulder. We've done all kinds of stuff like that. And that's something that they had never experienced. But now they are going to find themselves, rather than working with each other, or working together, mutually honoring, loving, respecting one another, and carrying out their God-given purpose on earth. Now we are going to find them at times at odds with each other, actually working against each other. As one person writing on this passage put it, to love and to cherish becomes to desire and to dominate. We laugh about it a little bit, but let's also remember that it's heartbreaking to read these words because what you and I know is just a normal thing of experience was not always so. Thirdly, I want us to see a judgment that God speaks on the man. Look with me, if you will, at beginning in verse 17 of Genesis chapter 3. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife 
and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Once again, the judgment relates directly to the task that God has given him. In chapter 1 and verse 28, God had given Adam the task of subduing the earth, of having dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living thing that moves on earth. God has put Adam in the garden to work it and keep it, to, to cultivate it and to guard it, and as I said, to use him and his descendants to extend this over the course of the whole earth. But now, when Adam tries to tame that wild horse, it's going to buck him off. Now when Adam tries to plant crops, something's going to attack those crops. They're not always going to bear what they once did. Adam had a great day at work every single day. Every single day he whistled on his way home from work and came in and and kissed Eve and she said, how was work today? And she said, what all of you say, men or women, when you get home from work, it was great. It was just another in a long line of fantastic days at the office. But he didn't say it sarcastically because his work was great every day. The soil did exactly what it was supposed to do. It yielded exactly what it was supposed to yield. But now when, Jesus try, uh, when Adam tries to work the ground, the ground fights back. The earth is still capable of being tilled and cultivated. We are still to have dominion over the earth that, he, that God has given to us. Yet nature is going to fight against our every effort. Let me remind you that work is not the curse. Work is not the curse. God had given them tasks and responsibilities from the very beginning in perfection. So we don't need to think, oh, because sin entered the world, now I have to have a job. No, no. Work is not the curse. Work is cursed. And it's been that way ever ever since. Every interminable Zoom meeting you have to sit through is cursed work. And you've turned yourself into a potato, like that one poor lady did that video was going around and didn't know how to turn herself back to a person. It's the sign of the curse in our labor. Every canceled flight when you're traveling for work and can't get home, every TPS report you have to submit, every endless email chain, every thing that you've built that the customer says, I actually want the sink on this side. In the words of a song from several years ago, it's a bitter, sweet symphony, this life. Try to make ends meet, 
you're a slave to money, then you die. That's a pretty bleak outlook. Adam is, in a sense, standing figuratively before his own grave. One of the, word, one of the phrases that is, is uttered at gravesides from time to time is, is, from dust we came, and to dust we will return. And though God's announcement that if you eat of the tree, if you disobey me, you will surely die, even though that has not come immediately true, it will come true. Adam is going to die. This is pretty bleak, isn't it? The whole sermon, we're talking about judgment. There's a fourth piece of judgment that I want to point out to you. Judgment on the couple. Look with me now at verse 20. The Bible says, The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. I told you last week, not everything that the serpent told them was a lie. The serpent told them that they would gain a sort of wisdom. The serpent told them that they would gain a sort of knowledge, but where the serpent's lie is that it would make them more like God. When in actuality, it destroyed them. Adam and Eve are now prisoners of entropy. They are prisoners of the gradual decline into disorder. You can see the lines of entropy and disorder form themselves on your own face. Maybe not day after day, but year after year. Decade after decade, you look at yourself in the mirror, and those lines are forming, and those hairs are graying, because we are dying. God expels them from the garden, and He guards the tree of life so that they cannot return and eat of it in their fallen state. And I just want to say to you, do not miss the significance of their expulsion from the garden. Sometimes the way we imagine the story is that Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, which means they can no longer live in this beautiful place that God had given them. And that's certainly true. But what there is far more happening here in their expulsion from the garden than just not, than just not being able to live in this really fantastic place. We said several weeks ago, some of you, many of you were certainly here for that, that the Bible portrays Eden as a sort of temple. It is a place where God has chosen to make His presence known. It's a place where the presence of God dwells. 
And so when the Bible tells us that they have been expelled from the garden, what, this, is, this is more than them being simply punished by being kicked out of a beautiful place. This sinful pair is being expelled from the presence of God. That's what's going on in their expulsion from Eden. The unbroken fellowship that they had experienced with God up to this moment has has drastically been altered. There is now a moral chasm between an unholy people and a perfectly righteous, holy God. Sin, don't let anybody tell you differently, does nothing but bring devastation. I want you to remember the prayer of Habakkuk. What did Habakkuk ask in the midst of all that judgment? He said, Lord, in wrath, remember mercy. There is a lot of judgment in Genesis chapter 3. And it can be disconcerting to actually read through that judgment because as we see what happened thousands of years ago and realize that we are still experiencing the effects of that judgment and we are still realizing that there is a moral chasm between us and a holy God, it can be difficult for us to consider it. But there is mercy in the midst of this judgment. The truth that I'd like us to see this morning is this, mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That is a phrase that James uses in the New Testament, in chapter 2, verse 13, mercy triumphs over judgment. The reason I say that mercy triumphs over judgment, even though there, proportionately speaking, is far more judgment in this passage than mercy, I want you to see why mercy is going to triumph over judgment. God's fingerprints of mercy are all over this text if we're looking for them. But I want to highlight just one sign of God's mercy. It's here in this chapter. It's found back in chapter, or in verse 15 chapter 3. I said we'd come back to it. There the Bible says, this is God speaking, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This verse has been referred to by theologians for several centuries now as the Proto-Evangelium. One of the things that theologians like to do is invent words that nobody else understands because it makes them feel better. But proto-evangelium, proto, first, evangelium, you hear the word evangelism, evangelical in there, the evangel, the gospel. Proto-evangelium means first gospel. Believing people for many centuries, have seen this as a first mention of the gospel. In fact, the great English 
preacher Charles Simeon called this verse the sum and summary of the whole Bible. Everything in seed form is contained in this promise. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This idea of offspring, this idea of descendants is such an important theme in the book of Genesis. Just taking the word offspring, the Hebrew word for offspring, it appears some 231 times in the Old Testament. So Genesis to Malachi, 39 books, this word for offspring appears about uh, 231 times, and a full 25% of them are found just in the book of Genesis. Because that should tell us something about that being an important theme in this book. And now we can see why, because there's something that Genesis is full of, and it's genealogies. You read through the book of Genesis, and you're never far away from a genealogy. And sometimes we get kind of annoyed when we bump into another genealogy, because we're like, again? More people that I don't know, and the Bible doesn't tell us anything about these people or who they are. It's just this long list of so-and-so begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so, who begat so-and-so. Oh, there's a name I recognize. And so sometimes when we're reading these genealogies, we just kind of get back to the, the parts we want to read. But this tells us why the genealogies are important if a key theme is offspring, because what Genesis is doing is telling us that God is keeping this promise. There is the, the offspring of the serpent, and there is the offspring of the woman, and that offspring of the woman is being traced in this circuitous route in all sorts of unexpected ways through this book. Furthermore, we've said that one of the key structural elements of this book that kind of helps us have divisions is the, is the phrase, these are the generations. We're talking about offspring again. And that phrase that introduces a new section either gives us a genealogy or it tells us a story about somebody in that genealogy. That's why the genealogies are important. And Genesis goes to great lengths to contrast the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And we could get deep into the weeds in this, and we won't today, but they are in constant conflict, and there are all these twists and turns. I mean, imagine Eve. She has been given this promise that she's going to have a descendant who is going to plant his heel firmly on the head of the serpent. Who are are the people she's going to be looking at about that? Her own sons, Cain and Abel. But what happens instead? Her oldest son places his heel firmly on the head of the younger son and murders him. So now what? I got a murderer and a dead one. And you said I would have a descendant. Then the Bible tells us that they end up having another son named Seth. this, This genealogical line is traced in such a circuitous fashion and it, it, never, it never works out the way we expect it's going to. I mean, uh, Isaac, you know, we've got Abraham, then we've got Isaac. Isaac has 
two sons, Jacob and Esau, that are twins, and the Bible tells us that the younger is born literally grasping the heel of the older. And that was a metaphor for the rest of their lives because they were at conflict with each other so much so that, that Jacob has to move away because he's afraid Esau is going to kill him. It happens in other ways. Beginning in chapter 37 and going all the way to the end of, the, uh, end of Genesis, Joseph is the key figure. Joseph is the guy that the whole story is about. Jacob's son, Jacob has 12 sons and one of them is Joseph, and the narrative is all concerned with Joseph, and yet when we get to the very end of Genesis, and Jacob is handing out blessings, who does he give the blessing? Who's, who's the line? Is, we would expect it's going to be Joseph, right? He's the guy we've been talking about for 13 chapters. Nope. It's Judah. 49.10, the scepter, this is imagery of, of kingship, this is royal imagery, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. So then we get to the New Testament. In the New Testament, the Bible clearly identifies this descendant of Eve's with Jesus Christ. And when we get to the very first book in your New Testament, the book of Matthew, Matthew breaks the cardinal rule of writing and speaking by not starting with something interesting. Everybody tells you if you're going to start a speech, if you're going to do a TED Talk, you've got to grab them right away. And Matthew's like, I'm going to pass on that and go with the genealogy route. <laughs> but as he walks through that genealogy, by second or third verse, he has already identified Jesus as coming from the tribe of Judah. And the book of Revelation describes Jesus in chapter 5 as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And when we see those things, it's the Bible's way of telling us across its broad storyline that this promise in 315, you better believe, is being kept. We're also not surprised in the apocalyptic vision of Revelation 11 that there is a dragon who the text identifies as Satan the deceiver standing before a woman in labor waiting to devour her child, but the dragon is not successful. And so while the heel of Jesus Christ is, to a certain extent, certainly bruised at the cross as he gives his life, so is the head of Satan. And let me tell you, friends, that at, that head wound is fatal. It's important for us to remember that the Bible says a whole lot of things that we have to hold in our hands at the same time. And the truth about Satan is another one of them, because the Bible tells us that, that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, which means that he's got a measure of authority to wreak havoc right now, and he's doing it. The Bible tells us that the, the devil... Is, is like a, a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour, and he eats well. But the Bible also tells us that Satan is walking around with a gaping head wound because he has already been defeated at the cross. That is why the Apostle Paul chooses to end his letter to the Romans 
The letter to the Romans is like his masterpiece on the gospel, his magnum opus on the gospel. He, he develops the good news of the gospel from beginning to end in a way that you can spend your whole lifetime studying. But it's very interesting when he ends that letter, he ends it with these words that tie us back to Genesis chapter 3 in Romans chapter 16 and verse 20. He says, in closing, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Isn't that an interesting way of ending it? And isn't that an interesting way of saying it? I I think this is a great way to end a letter. I think maybe we should start including this in our email signatures. (laughs) I would maybe not put that in your work email signature. Because you'll be having some discussions about that. But what a great way to end the letter. But what an unexpected way to end the letter. Because there's a word in there that is, is unexpected to me. What word is unexpected to you? Your. I would not expect that word. I would think that Paul would say, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under Christ's feet. And that is certainly true because Jesus is the ultimate descendant of Eve. He is the ultimate seed that is going to bring destruction to the works of the devil. But because you and I are united to Christ by faith, his victory is our victory. And so Paul can write, may the God of peace soon crush Satan under your feet. He's going to be dust under your feet. Not ought to bring encouragement to you because are you tired? Are you tired of the struggle? I am. And there's a lot of things that I'd still like to do in life, but I'd certainly trade all of them to be done with this. As you and I deal with the difficulties of life, Christian friends. As you experience pain, as you experience loss, as you try to go to sleep at night with your mind just swirling about that thing, as you wake up and immediately feel that clutch in your chest, because you remember whatever it is that's going to happen that day, or whatever it is you were thankfully able to forget because you were asleep. That's because of the curse. But you need to take heart, because the God of peace is soon going to crush Satan under your feet. Christian, as you struggle with sin, and you just wonder why you are still here with this thing. Or why there's a person in your life who's still here with that thing. As we struggle with our temptations and our proclivities towards sin, and we just feel like, when when is this going to end? 
God spoke a promise in Genesis 3.15. The God of peace is soon going to crush Satan under your feet. Every wrong inside of us and every wrong outside of us is going to be made right because the God of peace is soon going to crush Satan under your feet. 